This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. So if I were to ask you who your enemy is, who comes to mind? Like who, who, who do you think of? Now you might think of a, a general type of person or maybe a group of people uh, drawing sort of a caricature of what your enemy looks like, creating a, a type of enemy that stands for or has done something repulsive, that, that goes against the very way you believe that humanity should live and that society should function. Or you might think of, of a specific person uh, that, is, that has done something reprehensible, deserving of the title enemy. And while we are prone to think of our enemy as being someone out there, far more distant, uh, the pain they inflicted is, is, is less direct, but no less severe, those that are our enemies, that we truly view as our enemies, I think are, are much closer to us, much more intimate, and the pain they've inflicted far more direct the direct result of things that they have said or done, maybe things they have said about you, things they have said to you, things they have done to you, things they have not done. It might be that you see things so differently, disagreeing on things so violently that it's, it's driven a wedge between you, fracturing a relationship that had existed for years or decades to the point that you can no longer hold a civil conversation with them. You're out of topics in which you can talk about when you're together. Like, that's been especially true over this last decade, hasn't it? I mean, like, we've gone through some things, haven't we? Um, the list is long. We have political enemies, those who support a candidate or policies that we find absolutely revolting. And I'm not talking about one side or the other. We have theological enemies, those who hold beliefs from us that are different enough that we'll go so far as to question their own salvation. And I think what's made these last few years so difficult for us is that it's happening with those that are closer and closer to us. It's happening with those that we once considered friends. It's happening with those who are our family. We have people in our lives who are friends and enemies at the same time, who are family and enemy at the same time. And we're trying to figure out how to navigate that, aren't we? And like, it, is, it has destroyed relationships with people you may have known your entire life. And what is so easy for us to do is to just write them off, canceling our enemy, so to speak, isn't it? And hear me say, there will be times when we need to step away from a relationship. Uh, there will be times when we need to establish boundaries for a period of time. Um, but the words of Jesus point to another way. A way not of canceling our enemies, but of loving our enemies. And that's what we're going to see this morning as we conclude our series, The Measure of Maturity. As, as Jesus does two things, he's going to first, he's going to confront our misunderstanding of love, of how to love, and of who we are to love. And then he's going to correct our misunderstanding of love, showing us how to love our enemy and why we should love our enemy. Because as Donald Whitney writes in his book, 10 Questions to Diagnose Your Spiritual Health, the book that this series is, uh, was inspired by, he says, the test of Christ's likeness, i.e. the measure of maturity, is not the greatness of your love toward those who, you love, who love you, 
but the bounty of your love toward those who do not love you. The measure of our maturity is our love for our enemy. So let's dig into this this morning. Um, The first thing Jesus does, as he often does, is confront our misunderstanding of love. He's going to lovingly confront our misunderstanding of love. He says in verse 3, we're in here in the, um, the Sermon on the Mount in, in Matthew chapter 5. He says, he says, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You've heard it said. Other people have said that to you. And what's happening is like God's people, you guys remember that, the telephone game? Yeah, God's people were playing a little round of the telephone game. They, uh, the telephone game, for those who don't know, you, you sit in a circle and the first person whispers something to the person next to him. And then they whisper it to the person next to them, and you keep going around, pass it on, pass it on, pass it on, until the last person whispers what they heard into the ear of the person who started it, only oftentimes it sounds absolutely nothing like how it started. Like you started with, I think the 49ers, no, I think the Chiefs are going to win, but I want the 49ers to win, and the last person tells them, aliens landed yesterday. That's usually how it goes. And like, don't we do the same with what God has said oftentimes? Well, this is what I heard someone else say God said without ever actually reading it ourselves, basing our understanding of what God said on what others said God said. And what we end up doing is we hear an interpretation of what was said, and then oftentimes we remember an interpretation of what we heard, and by now we're like three, four, five, a hundred degrees away from what God actually said. Or worse, we base our understanding on what we assume he said, on what we hoped he said, or what we would have said if we were God. No wonder we have a misunderstanding of how God has called us to live in love as his people. And so Jesus confronts that misunderstanding. Because for the people that he's speaking to, uh, it had led them to limit how they loved and restrict who they loved. Right? They, they limited who they loved. They agreed, you should love your neighbor. Yeah, we're down with that. Um, but what God actually said in Leviticus 19, 18 was you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Did you notice what was missing there? As yourself. How to love. Loving in a way that you would hope to be loved if you were in their situation, if you were facing the same struggle. But instead, what they had done is they had created levels of love, tiers of love. They had platinum level love, if you do the multi-year subscription. There was a gold level of love. Notice how it used to be gold, silver, bronze. Now it's like platinum, gold, silver. Um, there was silver level love. It was kind of like more like, eh, tolerance. Or um, you remember, oh, you guys remember the last Avengers movie? I love you, 3000. Or uh, in our house, we always had this thing with the boys. I don't know how we started, but it was like, I love you mostest. It was like we were always trying to one-up each other. Love you 3,000, love you mostest. And then we're also like, no, but I, I love you three, maybe, maybe 30. I, I love you more. That's kind of how we go about it, isn't it? Limiting who we, how we love. But it also, they restricted who they loved. 
They restricted their definition of neighbor to their own people, to fellow descendants of Abraham, those who worshiped their God and lived according to their custom, those who uh, believed what they believed and those who behaved the way they behaved, thinking that if we're called to love our neighbor, then it only makes sense that we hate our enemy. Those who, like, those who are only, not only against us, but against our God, we, we should hate them. The problem is, God never said that. In fact, he said the exact opposite. Calling his people to love the stranger and the sojourner, right? The immigrant and the outsider in Leviticus 19. Calling them not to rejoice when their enemy falls or stumble in Proverbs 24, but to care for their enemy, feeding their enemy even in Proverbs 25. And so they took love, this thing that God intended to be broadly inclusive and made it blatantly exclusive. And again, I asked, don't we do the same thing? Limiting how we love, restricting who we love, restricting our definition of neighbor, making a neighbor based on the way we live and what we believe, making neighbor based on culture and citizenship, making neighbor based on denomination and the way we worship, making, de- uh, making neighbor based on your political party and the way you vote, like the list goes on and on and on and on in which we restrict who we invite to be our neighbor. Treating those with whom we disagree as our enemy. And when your loyalty to your own grows so strong, what you tend to do is loathe the other and treat them as an outsider, pushing them away, drawing a circle around those you like, those who are like us, And viewing those inside the circle as our neighbor, treating them as our friend, and viewing those outside the circle as an other and treating them as our enemy. Henry Nouwen, in his book, Following Jesus, he defines our enemy as someone we have defined as being against us in contrast to someone who is for us. It's like we're we're prone uh, to view our world through a very binary lens, aren't we? zeros and ones, making everything black and white and erasing the infinite shades of gray that exist in the middle, no room for any nuance, to the point that now when he goes on to say that our identity is often dependent on having enemies. We don't exist without an enemy. In fact, we define ourselves by what we are opposed to. We define the enemy And the enemy is there to define us. Meaning we are more often known by who we are against than what it is we are for. Known by the hatred of our enemies rather than our love of others, the singular thing Jesus said that we should be known for and recognized by. And then what we do is we take these two buckets, those who are for us, those who are against us, our friends, our enemies, the good guys and the bad guys, and it's always good guys and bad guys, right? That's every, every movie we've seen growing up, good guys and bad guys. And guess who's always the good guy? We are. We're always the good guy. And what we do is we take these two groups and we equate value and we equate worth to them, determining who is deserving and who is undeserving, excluding the undeserving enemy, not only from relationship with us, but from relationship with God. Restricting them not only from our love, but from his love. At least we try. 
And we not only view the other as an outsider, as an enemy, but then we begin to no longer view them as being an image bearer, slowly stripping away their humanity, robbing them of their dignity, and treating the thou created in the image of God as an it, in the words of Jewish philosopher Martin Buber. And here's the thing, like, hating your enemy takes a toll. It costs you. It weighs on you. It costs you time. It costs you energy. It costs you relationships. It costs you a piece of your own humanity. It, it slowly enslaves us, allowing the enemy to have power over us now when goes on to write. As these feelings of hatred and rejection and jealousy and resentment enslave us in a self-made prison of fear. All the things Jesus came to free us from, which is why he confronts our misunderstanding of love. But not only that, he also goes on to correct our misunderstanding of love. Because notice, notice what Jesus says here in verse 44. He says, but I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And well, what's interesting here is Jesus doesn't call us out for having enemies. He knows it's going to happen. He knows we'll have those that we view as enemies. What he does is he shows us how to respond to our enemies. And the only way to release this power that we allow our enemies to hold over us, to, to free us of this self-made prison of fear that we've built, is by loving them. Loving them like Jesus. And of all the things Jesus calls us to, as he invites us through a narrow gate down a way that he says himself is hard, loving our enemies, it might be the most difficult, isn't it? And like, there's no shortage of people we consider our enemies. People that have lied to you and let you down, people who have hurt you and humiliated you, people who have wronged you and who hate you some passively hating you, some actively hating you, maybe even abused you in some way. And so like, it'd be easy to sit there now saying, like, so I'm just supposed to get over it then? I'm just supposed to move past it, pretend like it never happened, and invite my abuser to be my neighbor? No, not doing that. I can't do that. I refuse to do that. I, there is no way Jesus could be doing that. That, that doesn't feel like freedom. That feels like more fear. I get it. But I also know that's not what Jesus is asking here. And so before we jump into what Jesus says in terms of how to love and why to love, I want us to kind of go back and uh, let's see what we know to be clear and certain in Scripture about love. Let's remind ourselves of a few things. Number one, I want us to remind ourselves that God is love, isn't he? 1 John 4, 8, God is love. Love is not just something God does. It's not something God feels. God, love is who he is. It is very nature and character and essence. And so when Jesus says, for God so loved the world, that is simply an outpouring of who God is. He can't help it. Number two, if we go all the way back to the first book in Genesis 1, what we see is that we are created in the image of a loving God. 
sharing in his communicable attributes, things like grace and mercy and justice and love. Albeit, we share in those attributes imperfectly, the image having been marred by sin. God is love. We are created in the image of loving God. Number three, love is not contrary to truth. Love is not contrary to truth. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 that love rejoices with truth. Truth spoken in love, he says in Ephesians 4. And so to love your enemy cannot be to deny the truth of the pain and the hurt that they've inflicted. Number four, love is not contrary to justice. In fact, the two go hand in hand in a dance, so to speak. Hosea, the prophet Hosea, he called Israel to hold fast to love and justice in chapter 12. The prophet Micah, uh, he says, you know what what God requires of his people? To do justice and love kindness. Hear me, God views justice as an act of love, as a love for others, living for the good of others. But not only is love not contrary to justice, love is not tolerant of injustice. It is not affirming of sin. That's true of God's love towards us. The author of Hebrews writing that that God disciplines the one he loves, confronting sin, exposing injustice. And so loving our enemy does not mean covering up sin. It does not mean we are free of consequences of sin, be it relational consequences, financial consequences, legal consequences. It does not mean covering it up. It also does not mean remaining in the midst of sin and remaining in the midst of an abusive relationship or an abusive environment because loving and doing good, it involves seeking justice and correcting oppression, Isaiah says in chapter one. And that leads us to to, to number six. Uh, The way of Jesus is a way of love. The way of Jesus is a way of love. As we saw last week, our our love, it should look like Christ's love for us, shouldn't it? It should reflect his love, reflect the love we've received, be a mere image of his love because it comes from Christ's love for us. That is how we know what love is. That is the source of our love. That is what enables us to love. And if you wanna know what that love looks like, Paul, he tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, this love is, is patient and kind, This love, it does not envy or boast. This love is not arrogant or rude. This love, it does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Because this love, the love that Christ has for you, This love never ends, he says. It is without end. It knows no limits. But notice in that list, those are not adjectives describing how love feels. No, it's a list of verbs that describe what love does. And that's because love's not simply an emotion you feel, but is a choice that you make. I'm choosing to love and an action that you take, living out that love. And with that in mind, I want you to listen to what Jesus has to say about how to love and why to love our enemy. 
It says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may become sons and daughters of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same thing? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same thing? You, therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. He's calling us both individually as his followers and collectively as his body to love our enemies. Not only telling us what, but showing us how and showing us why. Giving six ways, six reasons to love our enemy. And the first is, is rather obvious. It's loving like Jesus prays for our enemies. All right, loving like Jesus prays for our enemies. He says, pray for those who persecute you. In Luke 6, he adds to the pray for those who abuse you, bless those who curse you. He's saying like, this is one of the ways in which we love our enemy. It's by praying for them. And here's why. Uh, Bonhoeffer in The Cost of Discipleship writes that it is through the medium of prayer that we go to our enemy, that we stand by their side, that we in some way put our arm around them and we plead for them to God, interceding with God on their behalf. Uh, Okay, so what am I supposed to pray for? We're not just praying for an acknowledgement of the pain that they've caused. We're not just praying for an apology for the hurt they've inflicted because oftentimes that typically results in them just returning to that behavior again and again. No, what we're praying for is for the Holy Spirit to convict them of their sin. We're praying for a feeling of remorse. We're praying for repentance because only then is there any hope for true reconciliation and restoration of the relationship not just with their relationship with you, but the relationship with God. We should care as much about that as we do this. And so what if we began to love our enemies, those we view as as being against us, those we've labeled the bad guys? What if we began to love our enemies simply by praying for those who persecute you, praying for those who hate you, praying for those who have cursed you, praying for those who may have even abused you. I think it gives new meaning to the phrase that we have here of don't just say, oh, pray, but stop and pray. Because loving like Jesus prays for our enemies. Number two, loving like Jesus leads to greater intimacy with God. Here's a really, really good why. It leads to greater intimacy with God. It's something I think we all desire. He says, I say to you, love your enemies, and here's why. So that you may be sons and daughters of your Father who is in heaven. I, I think we all desire greater intimacy, greater intimacy with God. Yeah? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think we really struggle to find it at times. Like, what's, what's holding me back? What's, what's in the way? And I think we struggle to find it in part... Because harboring bitterness towards others creates a barrier to greater intimacy with God. That bitterness is a barrier. Don't hear what Jesus is not saying. He's not saying that by loving your enemy, God's going to love you more. That loving your enemy is what makes you sons and daughters and his beloved children. No, he's saying that with 
holding love, even from your enemy, it prevents us from fully experiencing God's love for us. Our Father, our Abba, who loved us while we were his enemies. It is a barrier to living out who we already are, which is his beloved children, his sons and daughters. And so loving like Jesus, it leads to greater intimacy with God. Number three, loving like Jesus imitates the love of God. It imitates it. It is a mirror image of a God who loves without distinction. He says, making his son rise on the evil and on the good, sending the rain on the just and the unjust. Now, um, in theory, that's a big asterisk at the beginning of this statement. In theory, parents model the behavior they want their children to imitate, to follow after, to reflect. And because children, they, they learn by imitating their parents and those they spend the most time with, um, they're going to follow in your footsteps. And so, like, here's the thing about kids. They see everything. They hear everything. They may not respond to everything. They may not reflect everything. They hear and they see everything. They imitate what they see and hear in us, especially those things we don't want them to see or hear. And they imitate those things when you're out in public at a restaurant for all to see and hear what you do through what they do. Thankfully, God's a bit better parent than us, isn't he, amen? He doesn't have the same bad habits we do. He doesn't let something slip and they'd be like, oh, you didn't hear that. Don't tell your mom that. Don't tell your mom what, don't tell your mom what you just saw. Or dad, moms probably do some bad things too. He doesn't have the same bad habits. Our Heavenly Father, he, who, who is love, who is just, he, 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 loves, he loves every aspect of his creation, pouring out his common grace on everything and everyone without distinction, the evil and the good, the just and the unjust. That is the love that Christ is calling us to imitate, to reflect, to be a mere image of, learning to love others by looking at our Abba, learning to love by looking at the way in which he loves, not just loving us, but loving all. Reflecting his loving character as his beloved children, growing and maturing to be more like Jesus, loving more like Jesus, imitating the love of God. Number four, loving like Jesus, it loves those who do not love us. It loves those who do not love us. It loves those who hate us. Uh, it's easy. It's probably really easy for you to love the person sitting next to you most days. Asterisk. It's easy to love those you like. It's easy to love those who love you. It is easy for me to love my wife, Jill. It is simply a natural response to who she is. God loves because of who he is. It's easy to love Jill for who she is. It is easy. Y'all remember my dog, Alice? I think, I think we've gone like three weeks without mentioning her. I just wanted to make sure you hadn't forgotten about her. Alice, our little rescue beagle from the pandemic. Like, it's easy to love Alice. Uh, it is easy to love a, I'm going to clarify this, a sleeping newborn baby. Those things are easy to love. It's so 
natural and instinctual that even tax collectors, even the IRS does it. <laughs> tax collectors at this time, like, they, the IRS gets a bad rap, but they're good people. They're just, they're just people. I don't know why they chose that job, but like, they did. They got hired. They do a job. It's okay. We're not talking about the IRS. We're going back 2,000 years talking about tax collectors, a whole different kind of folk. These were some of the most vile and despised people in first century Greco-Roman culture, especially since some of their fellow Jewish people became Roman tax collectors, skimming off the top from what they gave to them. And yet even these people who were reviled, who were revolting, even they love those who love them. But the challenge that Jesus is giving here isn't to love like the world, it's to love like him. It's to love like Jesus. And that's what makes the way of Jesus and loving like Jesus so radically different from the way of the world and what it is that the world loves. Because we're not just called to love those who love us, to love those who like us, but to love those who hate us. Number five, loving like Jesus, it welcomes those who are not like us. It welcomes those who are not like us. He says in verse 47, he says, and if you greet only your brothers and sisters, if you only greet the people you like, like what more are you doing than the rest of the world? Don't even the Gentiles do that? And too often the church draws this impenetrable circle around our own people. And people who are new, people who might be a little bit different. We make it impossible for them to ever break through that circle. It's like, it's like we're trying to keep them out. That's how the world loves. And Jesus says, don't be like them, be like me. Don't just welcome those you know, don't just welcome those you like, don't just welcome those who are like you, but anyone and everyone who walks through your doors. Because when we make someone feel unwelcome, either in the way that we treat them or in the way that we speak to them, ignoring them, failing to acknowledge their presence, failing to acknowledge their humanity, their very existence, we're not only saying we don't want you here, we're saying God doesn't want you here. We're not only saying you're not our friend, but you are our enemy. Man, we should be the most welcoming people that have ever existed in all of humanity, amen? We should be. We should be the most hospitable people that ever exist because we want more and more people to know Jesus and grow to be like Jesus, more and more people to receive and experience and encounter his presence and, and experience his love for them, no matter who they are, no matter what they've done, no matter how different they might be. And so, like, one of the just real simple, practical ways we live this out here at Redemption, if, if you're here and you call Redemption your church home, meaning this is the place where you worship and we are the people you worship with, I want you to think of yourself as a host because this is your home. You don't have a bedroom upstairs. It's not quite that home. There's another church that meets upstairs. Um, but you are a host because this is your home. And by being a host... We all share in the responsibility of welcoming guests into our home. Not just the people wearing the welcome team name tag on Sunday, but all of us. Making this a place to belong for anyone. And one of the real simple ways we go about doing this is by meeting someone new to you every Sunday. Well, how do I know if they're new to me? If you don't know their name or you don't remember their name. 
They're new to you. Yeah, but I've asked their name like 10 times and it's getting a little embarrassing for number 11. That's okay, Pastor Ash just gave you permission. 11th time, that's all good. By the time I say this, by the time we get to the 100th time, maybe write it down. (laughs) But you can still ask 101st. You're a host. This is your home, and we are welcoming those in. And like, you know how Rob's talked about, Pastor Rob's talked about this a ton. He's like, I wish we could all have our name said aloud by someone else up here. Downstairs and kids, he has them do that. Every child's name is spoken to them every Sunday that they're down there. What if we did that? That involves us doing something a little scary. The extroverts are like, I met 25 people new to me this morning. I'm out of people new to me. I gotta go bring more people here so they can be new to me. And some of us are like, (sighs) I'm also giving you permission to a wave, a hello, good morning, it's nice to see you. Those count too. Don't ever underestimate your presence as being welcoming to someone. Number six. Loving like Jesus, it conforms us into the image of Christ. He ends in verse 48 saying, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. I wanna tell you what I don't think Jesus is saying here and what I think he is saying. Uh, He's not saying if you get a 99% on that final exam that you failed. Jesus knows this side of heaven uh, that we will never be perfect in all things at all times. He's, He's perfectly aware of that. Um, he knows we're gonna stumble, he knows we're gonna fall, he knows we're gonna fail. We're gonna make mistakes, we're gonna let others down. We are going to make enemies and we're gonna fail to love our enemies as we progress in this journey. But this word here for perfect, teleos, it's about bringing something to completion. It, It has this idea of a journey of growth, of growing, maturing, of learning. It's something that's not yet fully developed, but is on a trajectory toward that. And in 1 John 4, 12, he says, if we love like Jesus, then God abides in us. It is is evidence of God abiding in us. It's not God abiding in us because we love. If we love like Jesus, God abides in us, and his love is is perfected in us. Maturing, growing, loving more like Jesus, imitating the love of God, reflecting the love that we have received. Living out our God-created identity, as Eugene Peterson writes in the message. Because following Jesus, it is not about being perfect, but about following the one who is perfect. Perfect. It is about growing to be more like him and loving like him. That is the way. That is the way of Jesus. That is the way of love. A way that loves others. Loves one another, as we saw two weeks ago. That loves our enemy, or sorry, loves our neighbor, right? Those whom God has placed in our lives and brought into our lives those who love even our enemies, at which point there is no more circle. It is everything. It is everyone. Loving all of creation, loving the entire world, a way that loves the way God loves. And what we know 
when we come to the cross is that God loves without limits. There is no boundary on his love. Love that God didn't simply declare, but displayed. Love is not an emotion we feel. Love is a choice that you make and an action that you take. And the choice God made and the action he took was that in while we were still sinners, while we were enemies of God as a result of our sin against God, Christ died for us. He died for you. He died for me. He died for those little ones downstairs. He died for those who are at home. And here's the thing. You know what Jesus said when he got nailed to the cross? He prayed. Loving like Jesus prays for enemies because that's what he did. He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's what loving your enemy looks like. That is the extent that we are called to go to, the love that we are called to live out. It, if we want to imitate God's love, that's the extent we've been called to. Love, love that forgives wrongs, love that pursues peace. Because his love, it embraced us where we were. It embraces you where you are not some future version of yourself, but where you are, the current version. Love that, like, it draws you to him. You, you can't fight it. And the thing about his love is he doesn't leave you the way he found you, does he? It changes you. It transforms you, not just once on a day when you said a prayer answered an altar call. Every day, the rest of your life, every step you take, faithfully following the way of Jesus in obedience to the words of Jesus, growing, maturing, following, learning. And that is what enables us to love, is his love. That is what enables us to love those that we consider enemies. That is what enables us to love like Jesus. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.